How do you wait? And not well can't be your answer. Uh, how do you wait at the doctor's office, at the airport, at the, the coffee shop? How do you wait? Do you read a book or a, a magazine? Um, do you, or a newspaper? Uh, do, you, do you listen to music or a podcast or, or, or watch a video? Do you um, scroll through headlines or social media feeds? You play a game of chess, perhaps on your, your mobile device, or work on your crossword or your wordle, or some, some other game. Uh, do you pace? Do you fidget? Do you focus on something? When we are unexpectedly forced to wait, we uh, typically find the nearest and easiest distraction. When we know that we will be waiting, we tend to be more deliberate, more decisive, and productive. So how do you wait for the return of the king? How do you wait for the appearing of Jesus? Are you waiting with purpose and patience? Are you waiting with hope, even amidst the heaviness that life sometimes brings? Perhaps it is the, the sorrows and sufferings of this life that make the waiting for Jesus that much more difficult. But I promise you this, the sufferings and sorrows of this life will make the appearing of our Savior and our eternal enjoyment of Him all the sweeter. We are waiting for our King. And that's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from God's Word. As you know, we are nearing the end of the final major section of the book of Genesis and really the end of the book itself. Genesis chapters 37 to 50, they comprise the final section of Genesis. So they tell the story of the life of Jacob, the patriarch, and God's faithfulness to his promises to Jacob and his sons. The sons will be the 12 tribes, the, tw the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Last week we saw that Jacob, Israel, as he's also known, he was drawing near to death. And he actually rallied to adopt and bless his two grandsons. This morning, as we study Genesis 49, verses 1 to 28, we see Israel bless his 12 sons. If you're looking at your Bible, then you'll notice that the text is kind of arranged poetically, in a poetic fashion. Uh, my Old Testament professor used to say that poetry is how you say the really important things in the Bible. Now, that might be a little bit of an overstatement, but not by much, as these are some of Jacob's final words to his sons. And as we start to unpack this blessing poem, it's important for us to be oriented to the structure of the poem. As you would expect, poetry in the Bible is artistically arranged, and that is no less true with this poem. Uh, this poem, we see that the lengthier blessings come at the beginning and the end, with shorter blessings in the middle. And in fact, the, the blessing poem moves from Leah's children to the children of Jacob's, uh, of, the, of the maidservants, of Jacob's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, and then finally to the children of Jacob's most beloved wife, Rachel. So that the children of Jacob's wives are kind of on the outside, the beginning and the end of the poem, with the maidservants, the children in the middle. And as is often the case in Hebrew poetry, the central truth of the poem is placed, well, in the center. So take a look at the very center of the poem. Genesis 49, verse 18. Do you see it there? It says this, I wait for your salvation, O Lord Yahweh. So in the middle of pronouncing blessings upon his son, Jacob, Israel, he pauses to pray, I wait for your salvation, O Lord Yahweh. This prayer shows us Jacob's hope and the hope that his sons should adopt as they consider their future as a nation. Salvation for the people of God comes from God and comes in the future. Jacob is waiting, after all. He is waiting in faith. He's hoping and trusting in the salvation that the Lord Yahweh has promised. But what is this salvation that Jacob is speaking of? It's none other than the salvation promise that began at the very beginning of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after the fall of man into sin, God promised that he would send a Savior to save men and women from eternal death. And he would send a son. This promised son, this savior, would come and he would defeat death, the devil, and depravity. And because we know the end of the story, we know that that son is King Jesus. But Israel, Jacob, he lived before the coming of Jesus. 
And so as Jacob is thinking about his sons and the people of God that he's building through these sons, in faith, Jacob prays and he waits for the salvation that God has promised in that future son. God's people in the Old Testament were waiting for the promised king to come. And we, we are waiting for Jesus to come again. Our hopes thus run parallel to the hopes of those who first read this book and this passage. And so there's much that we can learn from this passage as we wait for Jesus to come again. So beloved, here's the sermon in a sentence. Wait for the salvation of the Lord, for your king will come. Wait for the salvation of the Lord, for your king will come. I believe that there is a full outline in the bulletin that may help you to follow along. Let's begin with our first point. Salvation will come for all of God's people. Salvation will come for all of God's people. As we think about this, let's take a look at the introduction and the conclusion of the poem. Follow along now as I read Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now let's appreciate the gravity of this scene. Jacob is on his deathbed, and he calls his sons to his side. This often often happens in families today, doesn't it? A loved one is about to die, the phone calls go out, and the family gathers in the hospital room. Last words are often a mixture of sober and sweet. Earlier in the year, Dr. Tim Keller, a longtime pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, died. His last words to his family were these, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Earlier in the week, he had told his family, I am thankful for all of the people who have prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me, but I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Dr. Keller was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And as Jacob speaks here, he tells us that he was looking forward to Israel's future. Do you see those words in verse 1? That I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. The words that Jacob is about to speak are not merely a poem, but they are also a prophetic pronouncement. That phrase, in the days to come, it becomes a phrase the prophets use. In the last days. It's used in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, in Micah chapter 4, verse 1. And it expresses hope not only for the arrival of the Savior, but for the consummation of our final salvation. Remember the first audience of this book of Genesis is the people of Israel who have come up out of Egypt and they're preparing to enter into the promised land of Canaan. And as they hear these words, they are thinking about what the future holds for them. What will happen when we enter into the land? How will God lead and guide us? What tribes will emerge? What positions and placements will we have there? As we will see, Jacob addresses each one of his sons individually, but he's speaking to them corporately. I mean, he wanted them to, you see there in verse 1, gather together. He wanted them to assemble, verse 2. These brothers, they're going to hear one another's blessings, what Jacob, their father, Israel, has to say to them. The salvation that Israel is waiting to bring about is for all of God's people, all of those who will trust in God's saving promises. That's why Jacob speaks to all of his sons in the blessings. And all of his sons, did you see there? They're to listen. Children and young people. When your father calls for you to gather in the family room, to hear his instruction, to open God's word, and to open his heart to you, hear what your father has to say. When your father asks for you to listen, give him your ears and your heart. The book of Proverbs urges you to keep your father's commandment and to forsake not your mother's teaching. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Children and young people, when you, uh, you need to hear what your father has to say. And these men in Genesis 49 needed to hear what their father had to say. Look at the last verse of our text. You see verse 28, Genesis 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. 
This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. These blessings are complete, covering all 12 sons and thus tribes. But there's another indication that these blessings are complete. The word for bless or blessing is used three times there at the end of verse 28. Do you see it? He blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. Not a single son nor a single tribe was left out of the blessings. And by the time that we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, 12 tribes of Israel are listed there, symbolically showing us that salvation has come for all of God's people. Those saved and blessed in Revelation chapter 7, verse 12, speak a blessing back to the Lamb, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. If you belong to God, if you have come to know the blessings of salvation in Jesus Christ, then you do not need to fear being left out of the blessing on the last day. You won't be, for salvation will come for all of God's people. The Lord Jesus has promised in John chapter 6, verse 39, that he will not lose one of all that the Father has given to him, but will raise up every last one of his people on the last day. There's another thing that these blessings teach us, and it's simply this. Salvation will come for sinners. This is our second point now. Salvation will come for sinners. Follow along as I read Genesis 49, verses 3 to 7. Genesis 49, verses 3 to 7. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory. Be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, as you read these verses, you are no doubt tempted to think that these are not blessings. These are curses. And indeed, they are to a certain degree. The word for blessings that was used there in verse 28 is perhaps an umbrella term encompassing all that Israel is saying, really in verses 3 to 27. But Reuben's blessings, right, they begin with recognizing his position as Israel's firstborn son. And typically in the ancient Near East, firstborn sons would be given the pride of place, really in the inheritance rights. But as we saw in Genesis 48, the last chapter, and here, Reuben's really getting a demotion. In some ways, this should be entirely unsurprising to us. I mean, having read 48 chapters of the book of Genesis, we should be accustomed to the fact that the eldest son often gets a demotion in the book of Genesis. I mean, Cain, Ishmael, Esau, and as we saw in the last chapter, Manasseh, they all get demotions. Remember, God's gracious ways upend ordinary expectations and outcomes. Reuben is demoted, and we're told why. Reuben, as verse 4 tells us, you see there, is as unstable as water. Now that might describe his kind of personal temperament, and it might also be a poetic way of saying that he was not able to control his personal fountain. Do you, do you see the end of verse 4? Reuben went up to his father's bed, and he defiled it. Back in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, Reuben seduced Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Reuben was trying to take over the leadership of the family from Jacob by means of that seduction. Reuben sinned. And we're seeing here that his perversity did not lead to promotion or prominence, but to his demotion. And think about this. It has a lasting impact on those who are descended from him. His tribe should have had preeminence, but his tribe is relegated to obscurity. This is a curse, yes, but it is also a blessing to the people of Israel as a whole. Israel would not be blessed by an unstable leader. No nation is blessed by an unstable leader. An erratic Unstable leader is generally unlikely to be a blessing to the people he leads. The people of Israel and every nation needs a leader who is stable, 
sober-minded, and serious. And allow me to usher in another word of application, especially to the men gathered here this morning. Uh, Men, from this text, and really from Genesis 35, verse 22, we can see, men, we need to control our fountains. So men, you need to be a man of fidelity and faithfulness to your wife in mind, in heart, and in body. Recognize in Reuben that your sins have consequences for you and your posterity. Satan would love to convince you that your sins have no victims, but that is a lie that leads down. I mean, we see it right here. Even the sins of your mind are an offense against God and will corrode and corrupt your thinking about those made in his image. Do not entertain any infidelity. It will harm you. It will harm your relationships and your offspring in one way or another. While we wait for the king, we are called to stability, sober-mindedness, and sexual purity. Along with Reuben, Jacob also demoted Simeon and Levi. You see that in verses 5 to 7. They are demoted for what they did back in Genesis 34. When their sister Dinah was defiled, they deceived the men of Shechem. They convinced the men of Shechem to be circumcised. And then, when the men of the city were weak and wounded, when they were feeling safe and secure, Simeon and Levi took their swords and killed all of the men of the city. Jacob, he rebuked his sons, and he was forced to remove the family from the city. Because of their anger, wrath, and violence, they too were demoted. Not just that, but Simeon and Levi would also be dispersed throughout the land. When we come to the book of Judges, we see that Simeon is absorbed really into the tribe of Judah, and the Levites are scattered throughout the cities across the land of Israel. And brothers and sisters, notice this. Your anger today can have consequences, repercussions for your tomorrow. Proverbs 29, verse 22 tells us, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, that anger is worthy of God's eternal judgment. Jesus said there, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Paul tells all believers in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Take God's side against your sinful anger. It is wrong. You cannot coddle it or nurse it. Anger is destructive. It's not constructive. Anger does not, as James chapter 1, verse 20 teaches us, produce the righteousness of God. Beloved, let us repent of all known anger. And let us remember the anger and wrath of God the Father that was poured out on Jesus so that we might be saved from our sinful anger. While we wait for the King, let us not be violent, but gentle. And as we step back and consider Jacob's words to Reuben and Simeon and Levi in verses 3 to 7, let's appreciate that Jacob has the courage to say all that needs to be said. I mean, sometimes out of fear of man, we don't say all that needs to be said. Sometimes we shade or soften what needs to be said out of fear of losing a relationship or fear of facing revenge or retribution for our words. But the specter of death often casts such fear aside. Let me encourage you to consider that you are not promised tomorrow. And that death may be nearer than you think. Let me encourage you to say what needs to be said. Say what needs to be said. Not what you want to say, but what needs to be said. And in saying what needs to be said, you are not authorized to sin, to be rude, or to be cruel. You're authorized to speak the truth in love. All of Scripture's commands concerning speech are still binding upon you. So when you say what needs to be said, you need to say it within the bounds of Ephesians 4.29, which says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you say what needs to be said, your words cannot be corrosive or corrupt. Rather, they must be constructive and comforting in grace. They must be appropriate to the circumstance and controlled in a redemptive manner. 
Jacob's words here, they fit all of those requirements. Too often in his life, we read about how Jacob held his peace and didn't speak. He stayed quiet. But here he said what needed to be said. But salvation will come for sinners. All three of these men were sinners. And though they were demoted and even dispersed through the land of Israel, they remain a part of the people of God. They remain a part of the people who are waiting for salvation to come. God can even redeem sinners to his service. That's precisely actually what he did with the Levites. Perhaps the discipline of this pronouncement from Jacob upon the tribe of Levi was actually a blessing in the end. Perhaps it was part of that discipline and disappointment that was used to lead the tribe of Levi to repentance and to begin to take God's side against sin. I mean, do you remember when the people of Israel worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32? Do you remember what happened when some were still attempting to hold on to their idolatry after the Lord confronted the people? Moses proclaimed, who is on the Lord's side? And do you know who gathered to Moses' side? It was the sons of Levi who gathered to Moses' side. And they used their swords to carry out righteous punishment from God on idolaters. From that point forward, the tribe of Levi would come into the service of the Lord. They became priests in Israel. And they were scattered throughout the land. And their scattering was in part for the purpose of the Lord using them to be teachers of His righteousness among the people of Israel. Beloved, perhaps the real blessing of these curses is that they exposed the sinfulness of these men. When sin is exposed, we are driven to the Lord for mercy and grace and salvation. These men were not barred from salvation. They were blessed to remain connected to the people of God through whom the Savior would come. Their humbling before their brothers and before the Lord should have led them to hope. They might have been cast down from their prominence, but they were not cast out. Friend, do you realize that salvation is for sinners? Salvation is for those who know they need a Savior. And how can we know that we need a Savior unless our sins are exposed and brought into the light? Let these men and their sins and the grace that God shows to them be an encouragement to your soul. Let the blessings of these men preach to you the truth that salvation is for sinners. Have you come to know the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ? Have you come to know that you've been made by God, made to love Him and serve Him and honor Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? And have you come to see, have your sins been brought into the light, that you have fallen short of the glory of God? And do you know, friend, that God the Father in gracious love sent His Son to live for sinners like us, to live the life of perfect obedience to God the Father, and to offer His life as a substitute and a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus gave His life. He, he died for sinners, bearing the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. And after His death, He was laid in a tomb. But three days later, God the Father raised the Lord Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now all who turn from their sins and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ may be saved. Friends, salvation is for sinners. That's everyone who's gathered here this morning. Salvation is for you. So turn from your sins and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation comes for all of God's people all of whom are sinners. And in Genesis 49, verses 13 to 21, we learn that salvation comes, this is the fill in the blank, salvation will come for the average. That's right, I said it, the average. Salvation will come for the average. To be clear, uh, these brothers are sinners too. After all, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. But apart from that spectacular sin, in the narrative of Genesis, their depravity has largely been pushed kind of to the back burner. These tribal heads that we're going to read about don't have the grand sins in their past like Reuben and Simeon and Levi, at least that we know about. Uh, they're not the beloved sons of Jacob like Joseph and Benjamin. They're simply average or mid, as the cool kids say these days. Uh, their sins like our sins still make them worthy of God's eternal judgment. And so the fact that they are included in this company of God's people 
through whom the Messiah will come is a grace gift to God, uh, from God to them. And this should give us encouragement and hope because the reality is, is that most folks in society are average. Oh yes, your parents and school teachers might have told you that you're the next Einstein or that you'll one day be the next president of the United States because you're just so special. But the cold hard truth is that most of us are just plain old average. And God can and is wonderfully glorified in saving the average like us. Because the average are still sinners, they are still in need of saving. Follow along as I read verses 13 to 21. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to the bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord Yahweh. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. In Israel's blessing of Zebulun, we see that he will have the privilege of being connected to a port city. His allotment of land, Jacob tells us, is going to be in the northern territory of Israel. And now, if, if you were to kind of study through uh, the, the Old Testament and to kind of look at Zebulun's land, the land that's allotted to him, kind of in later biblical passages, it would appear that Zebulun is actually kind of in a landlocked position. But a major trade route passes through Zebulun, virtually giving him access to both the Mediterranean Sea to the west as well as the Sea of Galilee to the east. While we wait for the king, we should give thanks for where God has sovereignly placed us in his world. Zebulun's order in the list of sons is interesting because technically he was Leah's sixth son, which means that he preceded Leah's fifth son, Issachar, who is mentioned there in verses 14 and 15. And when you puzzle over Issachar's blessing, you'll perhaps see why it is that Zebulun is kind of blessed before Issachar. Issachar, we're told, is a strong donkey. Now, in, in those days... Being called a donkey was not necessarily an insult, especially a strong one. In fact, a donkey was a noble animal who worked and was even sometimes given as a, as a gift. But look at what Iskar is doing. The strong donkey is staying out of sight, hiding between sheepfolds. Uh, this is, seems to indicate that the strong donkey was unwilling to work. He was lazy. He found a resting place and he basically kind of laid down. But notice how verse 15 concludes. Issachar became a servant at forced labor. This is what lies ahead in the future. And let us all notice this laziness does not lead to less work, but to more work. And at the command of others, of all people, the people of God should be known for their excellent and hard work. Brothers and sisters, show up early. Be diligent in doing the work that's assigned to you. Uh, don't worry or complain about others, what others are doing or not doing. You do what's right. Serve your boss as you would serve Jesus Christ. That, I think, is the thrust of what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 8, when he says, serve Christ as master. If Jesus asked you to do this task, how would you do it? Work like that. Work like you are serving the Savior, because you're all. While we wait for the king, let us work hard. Let us work for the glory of the king. In verses 16 and 17, we get Dan's blessing, and we see that he's going to be a judge. This is probably a play on actually Dan's name. Perhaps this looks forward to Samson, who was from the tribe of Dan and was a judge in Israel for 20 years. Samson, you'll remember, was out of control in his pursuit of Delilah, but even that the Lord used to defeat the Philistines in his death. The Philistines thought they could trample on Samson underfoot like a serpent, but he surprised them and brought a great house down upon all the leaders of the Philistines. While we wait for the king, we should be faithful to pursue God's justice and righteousness where he has placed us. And as with the tribe of Dan, 
Gad, we see here, would similarly strike back against his enemies. Gad was situated on the eastern borders of Israel and faced constant attacks. But part of this blessing shows that they will be able to fight back and in a powerful manner. Given the warfare is mentioned here in verses 16 and 17 and 19, it's appropriate that that salvation prayer is really sandwiched there in between there in verse 18. When salvation does come, God will give his people rest from all of their enemies on all sides for all eternity. While we wait for the king, we should put on the whole armor of God and put the enemy of sin and death, uh, put, the, put the enemy of sin to death in our lives. With Asher and Naphtali in verses 20 and 21, we're given more peaceful promises, you see there. Asher is happily situated on fertile land, and Naphtali is as free to roam as a doe, a deer, a female deer. While we wait for the king, we should, I appreciate you picking that up. Uh, While we wait for the king, we should give thanks to God for the beauty and bounty of his creation. We should freely roam it, delighting in our God and what he's pleased to display of his power and character in the world. Now, when you step back and you consider the blessings pronounced upon the average, upon Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, you can see that God will give his people wealth from the sea, strength for the body, victory over enemies, refreshment from resources, and freedom. These promises are hopeful and look forward to life in the promised land of Canaan. But they also typify life in the heavenly Canaan too. There the average but redeemed will gather to enjoy the infinite wealth of our Savior, endless strength for our bodies to serve Him, and final victory over evil and over the evil one. We will enjoy a wedding feast for the ages and freedom from all of its sin and effects. Do you wait for that salvation from the Lord? Are you waiting for that day when the King will come and bring us into eternal blessing? Salvation will come for all of God's people, for sinners, for the average, and from the Lord. We've seen this already in verse 18 with Jacob's prayer. But as we read the blessings of Joseph and Benjamin, see if you can find the cluster of references to God's providential, preserving, and powerful hand in Genesis 49, verses 22 to 27. Follow along as I read this portion of Israel's blessings. Pick up there in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set set apart from his brothers, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. In these verses, we get the blessings of Joseph and Benjamin. These were the favored sons of Jacob, of of Israel. And it's not altogether surprising that Joseph receives the largest amount of attention of the sons in the list of blessings. The majority of Genesis chapters 37 to 50 have been about Joseph and about how the Lord was pleased to save the people of Israel through him. In Joseph's blessings, we get themes that will reverberate through the rest of the Old Testament. I mean, just consider the language of verse 22. We're told that Joseph is like the fruitful branches of a tree situated by a spring. Now think about that. Where in the Bible have you seen that imagery before? Do you you remember where you hear that in the Psalms? It's right in the very first Psalm. We hear it right away in Psalm 1. Joseph will be like that blessed man who delighted in the law of the Lord. That blessed man, the psalmist says, was was like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. The ever-expanding fruitful branches reminds us not only of the fruitful trees in the Garden of Eden, the fruitful tree that's growing and blossoming in Psalm 1, but also of the fruitful trees in the garden city of the book of Revelation. Keeping the fruitful bough and the spring of water mentioned here 
in mind. Listen to the words of Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. John's vision says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land, through the middle of the street of the city also. On either side of the river is the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. While we wait for the king, we ought to remember the promised blessings of the new creation that are before us and are sure to come to us. While Joseph would be fruitful in the future, verse 23 reminds us that he was faithful in the present. In verses 23 and 24, Jacob, he paints this picture of of Joseph as an archer who was attacked and harassed but he did not let his arrows fly. Instead, the Lord moved Joseph's hands in an agile and beautiful way to bring blessing to others. Maybe this reveals that Jacob knew what happened between the brothers. Now that he's had kind of 17 years with Joseph there in Egypt, perhaps Jacob learned about how the brothers attacked Joseph, threw him into the pit, and eventually sold him into slavery. Perhaps Jacob knew that Joseph, with all of the power of Egypt, could have let the arrows of revenge fly. But by the grace of God, instead of his arms being swift to shed blood, they were used to bring blessing to the brothers. We would be wise to pray that God would give us the grace of restraint when we are attacked. We would be wise to pray that God would give us the grace to use our hands in ways that bless rather than burden others. Israel even seems to recognize that the faith of Joseph was kept alive and active. Joseph was sustained by the God of his father. Joseph was shepherded by the same God who had shepherded Jacob. The stone of Israel was Joseph's stone. Jacob seems to be recognizing Joseph's faith. And that phrase, stone of Israel, calls to mind the times that Jacob himself actually set up memorial stones when God had acted to rescue him and revive him and to remind him of his promises. In verses 24 and 25, Jacob is clearly urging Joseph to continue to look to God for help. God would need to be the source of Joseph's sustenance and strength and security. This was true not just for Joseph as a tribe, but for all of the tribes listening in. Salvation will come from the Lord. And we need to remember this too while we wait for the king. So many different things in this world tempt us to look to them for safety and security and prosperity. Politicians, wealth management gurus, and others offer themselves to us as kinds of saviors. But salvation comes from the Lord alone. And we need to remember this while we wait for the king. Toward the end of verse 25, you see though that Jacob reassures Joseph that God Almighty is the source of all blessing. Jacob promises Joseph great fruitfulness. Joseph and his descendants will be fruitful and they will multiply. That's what the mentions of the blessings of the breast and the womb communicate. Jacob speaks of his own rich blessing there in verse 26. With a thankful heart, he is declaring that his personal blessings exceeded that of his father and grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. And the purpose of this declaration is not only to give thanks to God, but also to pray that Joseph's blessings would exceed Jacob's blessings. Joseph was clearly a beloved son, and so was Benjamin. Benjamin, of course, is the youngest of the 12 brothers. He's mentioned there in verse 27. And while he's the youngest, and while our lists today often run kind of from the most prominent to the least, that's not necessarily the case with this list, as we've seen. Benjamin's blessing, I was kind of surprised by. I mean, all throughout the narrative, Jacob has been kind of the protective father of Benjamin. Israel constantly feared that something bad would happen to Benjamin. And that's why he so steadfastly refused to allow Benjamin to go with the brothers down to Egypt for as long as he did. But as we're seeing here, Benjamin will not be the prey. Instead, he's going to be the hunter. Indeed, he will be such a prolific hunter that he's able to be generous and kind of divide the spoils with others. This prediction would come true for Benjamin in his tribal history. If you were to read the book of Judges and 1 Samuel, the Benjaminites were known for their bravery and accuracy. And we were told in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, that from their left hand, every one of the warriors of Benjamin could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. As we consider the blessings of Joseph and Benjamin, we consider a rich cluster of names for God. 
Yahweh is identified, you see there, as the mighty one of Jacob, as the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father and the almighty. Beloved, behold your God in these names, these glorious names. The first and the last in these lists of names, they key in on God's mighty power. Our salvation comes from our God who has irresistible power, inexhaustible power, infinite power. Our salvation comes from a God who is a wise and good shepherd. Our God safely leads his people, not only through deep valleys, but also to everlasting green pastures. Our salvation comes from our God who is a rock. He's a stone. We can build our lives upon him. He is a firm foundation. We can hold on to him and not be moved. Our God is the God of the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God is a God who has shown himself faithful throughout history. Our salvation comes from a God who has a history of faithfulness to his promises and faithfulness to his people. We can trust him for the future. We can trust him that he will send his son again. And that's what I want us to think about in our last point. Salvation will come from a king. Take a look there at Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. Genesis 49, verses 8 to 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey, his donkey's colt, to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. These promised blessings bubble over with the hope of the coming king who who will save God's people from their sins. And you need to know that these verses, these verses show the trajectory really of the rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament. They run right through to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Judah, in verse 8, is promised victory over his enemies. His hand will be on their neck. Now, this picture is as if, like, the enemies of Judah, they're fleeing away, and he grabs them by the neck, and he pulls them back for judgment. They face his judgment. There's no escaping Judah. There's only exalting Judah. In a play on Judah's name, which means praise, we're told that Judah's brothers will praise him. But not only that, they will also bow down before him. Who did the brothers of Israel most recently bow down to? In the book of Genesis, who did the brothers of Israel bow down to? They bowed down to Joseph. So in the, the days ahead, a descendant from Judah will be a ruling savior of the world like Joseph. Joseph established a pattern as a savior. And now a future son of Judah will fulfill that pattern. The people of God will bow down to this future descendant of Judah. He will feed hungry souls and be bred for the world bread of life for the world. Judah, he receives praise. He has victory over his enemies. And he is full, as we see here, of ferocious power. He is described as a lion that no one dares rouse from rest. Remember what we read from earlier in the service from Revelation chapter 5, verse 5? That's how our Lord Jesus is described. The apostle John, remember, he began to weep so loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scrolls and bring final judgment and salvation to its consummation. But suddenly, one of the elders said to the apostle John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus, he defeated our enemies of sin and death by his cross and resurrection. And he is the lion from the tribe of Judah that's promised here. Remarkably, we're told that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter, of course, is a part of kind of royal regalia of a king. It's a symbol of his power and authority and rule. We're told in verse 10 that the ruler's staff 
will not depart from between his feet until, you see there, until the tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now that language of between his feet is a euphemism. The idea is that the tribe of Judah will continue to sire kings and sons until the final son and king receives the tribute, the obedience, the worship of the peoples. And that phrase of the peoples there at the end of verse 10 is important because it shows us that this king will not just be the king over the people of Israel, but he will be the king of the world. The words used here for of the peoples are used in Genesis chapter 27, verse 29, and Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, to refer to the foreign peoples. This future son of Judah will receive tribute and trust from people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is what we read about in Revelation chapter 7. Listen to verses 9 and 10 of Revelation 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The salvation that this king brings, according to Israel, Jacob, is rich beyond measure. I mean, that's what verse 11 is getting at. This king is so rich that he can bind his foal and his donkey to the choice vine. What is a donkey going to do if he's tied up to a cluster of grapes? He's going to eat it, right? And this is not just any vine you see there. This is the choice vine. This king is not worried about losing a choice vine to his donkey because the wealth of this king is so immense. This wealth, the wealth of this king is so immense. In fact, you see here, he can wash his garments. He can do his laundry in wine. He, he can fill up the scrub bucket with wine as if it were as common as water. That's how wealthy this king is. His wealth is beyond compare. The final vision of verse 12 speaks of the personal beauty of this king. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. I'm reminded of the Apostle John's vision of the Lord Jesus in Revelation 1, where he says that Jesus' eyes were like a flame of fire. When you behold this king, you behold unparalleled glory. Beloved, consider how these promised blessings of Judah were worked out across the Old Testament and into the New. As the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, as he looked forward to the coming kingdom of the Christ, the Messiah, this is what he said about that coming kingdom and what the Messiah would bring in Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. He said, On this mountain the Lord Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now think about our Lord Jesus and his early ministry. Do you remember what the first sign was that Jesus performed in the Gospel of John? Do you remember what he did when Jesus turned an incredible amount of water into wine? And do you remember what the master of the feast said when he tasted the wine? In John chapter 2, verse 10, the master of the feast said, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, when he turned water into wine, he provided well-aged wine at that wedding feast in Cana to show that he was the son and the king from Judah, to show that he was the Messiah prophesied in Isaiah. That miracle at the wedding feast of Cana was a foretaste of the wedding feast that will take place in the heavenly Canaan. The wedding feast that Revelation 19 pictures. At that marriage supper of the Lamb, all of God's people, saved sinners, great and small, will be welcomed 
because the wait is over. Which is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Our Lord did not promise us that the wait would be easy. He did promise us that there would be a wait. And that it would not and that it would come to an end. The wait will come to an end. Jesus promised in Revelation 21, verse 4, that he would bring an end to death and mourning and pain. Jesus promised us that when he did bring our weight to an end, that he would comfort us, that he would wipe every tear from our eye. One day, there will be no more war. One day, there will be no more goodbyes at deathbeds. One day, there will be no more marriage conflict or breakups or divorce. One day, there will be no more debt or unemployment or poverty. One day, there will be no more depression and anxiety or bouts with bipolar emotions. One day, there will be no more cancer or car accidents. One day, there will be no more addictions or abuse. One day, there will be no more disability or disintegration of the body. Beloved, let us learn from Jacob and Genesis 49 that we wait for our salvation in hope. We wait in purity. We wait in faithful labors. We wait in righteousness. We wait in gentleness. We wait in faith. Because one day, in the words of Isaiah 25, verse 9, we will say, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. Let's pray for that grace now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this precious promise that one day the wait will be over. And Father, we need your grace now and today and every day that you give us to wait in faith and hope and love. Father, we pray and ask that in the the bitterness of this life and the, the burdens that we face, in our sufferings and sorrows, that you would help us to take Christ by the hand and not let go, to wait in faith, holding on to his hand and trusting his leadership everywhere he takes us. Father, would you give us the grace to wait for your honor and glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.